So the stress and the tension is continually increasing. It's ratcheting up. Like it was on a particular Saturday morning as a Sabbath, of course. The guys are hungry, and like it said in the Old Testament, the law that you need, if you're a farmer, you need to leave some wheat or food out on the side of the road so that you could pick that as you went along, and that's what these guys were doing. Only to be interrupted by some Pharisee in the background who yells out, what are you, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing that? Why, why, why do you do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Kind of interrupting the time that they had together and kind of wondering, well, what's Jesus going to do with this? And it goes on and it goes on. And in and, and another Sabbath, we, we pick it up in Luke 6 in the passage that Pastor Mike taught to us last week with the guy who goes in and has his hand and it's not well. And in the Sabbath, and Jesus tells him to come to him, and he real looks at the Pharisees that are there thinking, what's he going to do? And then he throws out this question to them. He says, well, I will ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? It's put out there for them. How will they respond? How actually will this man respond who's got this hand that's not well? And then Jesus, after he had told him to come up, he says, stretch out your hand, and the guy does, and it's healed. And we see that the Pharisees at this point are even more enraged about this new rabbi, this Jesus who's come along and is doing things that are different than any other rabbi is doing. The Bible tells us that more and more people came on those Saturday evenings when the sun set and Sabbath was over and you could actually carry somebody, your cousin, your friend, your neighbor, your, 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 your child, to be healed by this particular rabbi. That was the norm, and it's starting to pick up more and more and more in the Saturday evenings. I mean, the disciples that are following Jesus at this point are going, man, Saturday nights have changed since I started following this rabbi. It's exciting. It's unlike anything we've ever seen. And the demands that the crowds had on Jesus were growing by the day, growing by the week, growing by the month. It's nonstop at this point, and as Jesus is doing this, he's human after all. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully man, and he needed a break. He needed some rest. Perhaps you've been there before when your life is busy. Which raises the question, then what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do at this point? Well, we pick up the story several weeks later in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there to Luke chapter 6. We're at verse 12 as we continue this series knowing the truth about Jesus and the gospel of Luke. So what does Jesus do? All this stress, all this tension rising, all the people coming to see him, wanting to be healed. Well, what's he going to do at this point? Verse 12 says, It was at this time, then, that Jesus went to the mountain, went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. What did Jesus do? He spent the whole night praying to God. Have you ever prayed all night to God? In other words, you skipped sleep. Your eight hours of darkness, so to speak, before the sun comes up, you spent time praying, actively praying to God? I don't think I've ever you know, stopped for a whole night and prayed to God. I've done it while I'm moving, uh, in youth ministry, I used to do what were called all-nighters, and it is what it is, all-nighters. You would have an activity that ran all night long. So for me, for, for gosh, I don't know how long it was, over a decade, 
Uh, we used to go on New Year's Eve to Knott's Berry Farm. They had Christian bands that would play there. So you'd, you'd start at like 7 o'clock with the kids and get, the, get to Knott's Berry Farm. And then, and then you would say, well, let's keep going. And you'd go to the hockey rink where you'd rented it out for broom ball for two hours. And then after that, you'd get back and go to the bowling alley and do rock and bowl under the, the black lights until it was like 5 in the morning. And then you'd go back to the church and you would have other games because you had to do this. And I can promise you, I was praying all all night long to stay awake and to make it through and survive those all-nighters. That's the closest thing it's come to me for staying awake and praying all night long. So why then did Jesus pray all night long? Well, the answer is found in verse 13. Look back in your Bible. And when day came, so night is over, Jesus has prayed. He's coming down the mountain. So here it is. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he had named as apostles. So he spent the night praying. What's he praying about? Well, I want to submit to you, there's probably two parts to his prayer. One, I believe, is just what we're seeing here. He wanted his father's guidance on selecting the 12 apostles. See, at this point in time, Jesus has a multitude, multitude of disciples but now it's going to happen that he's going to select 12. So he's prayed all night. He's coming down, and he comes up to all these disciples that are probably waking up and going, man, where have you been all night? Of course, he's been praying, seeking God's guidance, his father's guidance, because he needed to do that. I mean, the future of the church is going to rest with these guys. This church doesn't exist if these guys don't get it right. I mean, it would have struggled for us to make it all the way here if these guys don't, aren't the right ones and they don't respond to what God is calling them to do. So he has an important decision to make through prayer. I think the other part of his prayer was just asking God for strength. Just asking God to help him manage the stress, the tension that he was feeling, the opposition that was growing against him. I mean, we're going to be remembering next week, Good Friday and the crucifixion. I, mean, I think that that's got to be weighing on him, knowing what he's doing. The rest of the disciples don't get that yet, but he does. He knows what his mission is for and why he's come, ultimately to honor and glorify his father. And by doing so, he would go to the cross and lay his life down for us. So Jesus is praying strength for strength as he faced the road ahead. I think he's also praying, God, Heavenly Father, help me pick out these 12. Help me pick the right ones. So he's spending the night in prayer. And right from the get-go in his earthly ministry, as I said, he's got a large number of disciples that are following him. And from this multitude, he would choose 12 to be close to him. 12 that he would pour his life into, unlike the rest of them. 12 that he would train up. And 12 that would become his apostles. So it raises a question. Disciple, apostle. What's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Because we see those words interchanged here. What's the difference? Well, simply, first, a disciple is a follower. In this context, it's a follower of God. Someone who's following after God. But if you just break it down to the nuts and bolts of disciple, it simply means follower. So in other words, there are people in our world today that are followers of a TV show. They're a disciple of that. They're a follower of somebody as a celebrity, and maybe they're using social media, and they're following that. Maybe we follow a certain sports team. Maybe you follow what your grandkids are up to, right? You're kind of that follower of what they're about. 
Same idea. For me, one of the things I'm a follower of is the World Surf League. I know you all have that on your app for your phone to watch the surf contests around the world like I do. But I'm a follower of that. I'm a follower of sports. That's part of what I do. I'm a follower of the aroma that comes from my kitchen like it did last night when my wife was making chocolate chip cookies. I follow that because I follow her cooking and baking. That's just, that's what I'm a disciple of her cooking, right? So in this context, though, the follower is a follower of God, a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple means. How about apostle? Well, apostle means messenger. It's one sent out by God. And this means that this is directly in the face of Jesus, face to face, that Jesus says, I choose you and you and you. He's only done this 12 times. Uh, 14 if you add it all up because there's one guy who betrays him they have to pick another one in Acts 1 and then there's another one the last apostle who's the apostle Paul and Christ appears to him so that's kind of the prerequisite you got to have Jesus has to show up face to face if you're going to be an apostle so that would tell us then that apostles aren't around today we only have disciples followers of Jesus but these messengers these apostles would be sent out by God they'd be given authority by God Acts 1.8, when Jesus is about ready to ascend into heaven, he says that there's a helper. The Holy Spirit's going to be coming. And you, the 12, are going to go out and be my witnesses. Locally, in the region, and all across the world. Even to Aliso Viejo, if you will. So, disciple, apostle, follower, messenger. So, who did Jesus actually choose now? Well, if we look back in Luke chapter 6, verses 14, 15, and 16, we have the roster. Look at verse 14 of Luke chapter 6. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So I put a list up there for you in the slide just to kind of let you see all these guys, these 12 that are picked out. If you go between the other three gospels, you'll start to see some different names used. And the reason why that is is because these guys had a regular name given to them and sometimes they had a nickname given to them. And others were given a new name by Jesus, like Simon became Peter. So there's a variation a little bit, and the writers take the liberty, as God led them, to write and record who these guys are. But you can see the list that's up there of the 12. The question might come up, well, why, why 12? Why do you pick 12? Well, I, I want to say to you that biblical scholars kind of align in it to the 12 tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. Say that three times fast. Um, whether that's for sure, no one knows the mind of the Lord, Right? But it, but it leans to be that way. And when we look at Scripture, we see parallels happening in the Old Testament and playing out in the New Testament. So that's a reasonable concept to come to is Jesus forming the nucleus of his new nation, right? Nation, the 12 tribes. Now there's going to be a new nation, a new covenant, which we celebrated here and remembered here this morning. These 12 are young guys. They're teenagers, did you know that in the culture of that day, at the age of 12, you were to go begin looking for a rabbi that you would follow, a teacher? In other words, you were to find a church, a synagogue uh, to, to, to follow and to go to, and that rabbi would be your teacher. 
So 12 to, by the time you're 30, you have better found your rabbi by now that you're gonna follow for the rest of your life, at least as long as he lives. And so here are these disciples, these guys that are following, these people that are following, they start going, hey, I'm gonna pick this rabbi. This rabbi does things like any, I mean, he kind of upsets the Pharisees, but I don't know, he, he seems to have an answer for them and they can't respond. Saturday nights now? After the Sabbath, when the sun is set, I mean, this rabbi is awesome to follow of what he's doing. And that's what we have unfolding here with these guys as they start to to pick and say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. Five of these guys are fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip. And we got one guy who's a tax collector. That's Matthew, also known as Levi. There are other six we have no idea what they did. They didn't mark that down when the, the sheet that Jesus gave out said, you mark down your occupation. The gospel writers, for some reason, missed that part and didn't get included in here. Now, we don't know what the other six did. What that kind of tells you is it doesn't really matter what their occupation was or what your occupation is. It has a role. It's important. But it doesn't, doesn't have a factor in deciding whether or not you can be used of God. Simply just to understand that. At the end of the day, these were ordinary men possessing different personalities, different backgrounds, different upbringings, maybe persuasive, uh, look at certain things, interpret certain things in the Bible uh, in their own way. But here, here's this group of guys that are coming together. And these group of guys, these 12 that Jesus calls to him, are going to learn from him. And then they're going to be sent out as apostles, which means what? Messenger with the authority of God to go preach the word. In some cases, they'll do miracles and they'll drive out demons. They have quite a role, quite an opportunity here to go and do this. Now you look at these 12 and you think, okay, just time out. Why in the world did he choose Judas Iscariot? I mean, John 6, 64, John puts in his gospel that Jesus knew ahead of time before he even came down and chose Judas Iscariot that he was going to betray him. I mean, why would he choose the him if he's going to betray him? Well, we don't know the mind of the Lord exactly, but only God knows. But I would submit to you two what I'll call reminders. Reminders for us when we look at Judas Iscariot. Remind yourself that close association with Jesus doesn't necessarily reveal the true condition of a person's heart. They can look the part, they can even talk the part, but where their heart truly is in devotion to Jesus, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's right where it's supposed to be. So that's a reminder that I think Judas can give us. Another reminder is this. Like Judas, we've all sold out Jesus for less than 30 pieces of silver. We've all at times denied him for silly, silly, foolish reasons through our lives. So I think it's a reminder when we look at Judas Iscariot and go, how could Jesus ever pick him? I mean, he says in the word that he even knew he was going to betray him. And I would just say, step down and look in the mirror and go, have I ever been like Judas Iscariot? As I prepared this message, I went, oh man, I I don't want to look in the mirror anymore. Because I see him and reminded of myself at times and how I've been in my journey with Jesus. So these are the 12 apostles. None of us are ever gonna be an apostle. They've already been chosen, that's done. But most of us, if not all of us here this morning, are gonna claim to be his disciple. We claim to follow 
Jesus. We claim to follow his word. We claim to follow the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And so we're those people. We're the disciples. But let's ask this a question. What are the qualifications for being a disciple of Jesus? I'm not speaking about salvation here. I'm just saying, what, what does it look like for, for a disciple? What does a person have to come to a decision on to really be, let's say, qualified, that you could really be and remain on the roster, if you will, that says that there's some legitimacy to your being a disciple? Is it that you have to come from a Christian home? Is it that you're a good person? In other words, you signal when you change lanes, for example. Is it, is it that you write thank you notes? I don't know. Maybe you're the churchgoer. You've gone going to church all your life. You think, well, that qualifies me as a disciple. I think there's evidence for that, perhaps, but that's not really where it's at. Let, let me give you two qualifications, or maybe you could call them character traits, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The first one is this. Belief in Jesus. You've got to be a Christian. You have to have a belief in who Jesus says he is and agree with that completely. You have to be looking at Jesus and say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner and you are holy and you are Savior. Oh, by the way, that's your name, Christ, Savior. And that I need you. And I believe that you are the only Savior for my sins. You are the only way, the truth and the life to be able to go to heaven. That's the belief, and that's what you hold to. This is what happened to Andrew and Peter in John chapter 1, verse 41. It says that the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon Peter and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. In other words, there's belief here. It would happen to Nathaniel as well. His name is also used as Bartholomew. John 1, 49 says, then Nathaniel or Bartholomew declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There's a belief, a life-transforming, saving belief that Jesus, who Jesus is. In other words, you got to believe who Jesus says he is beyond what why James would, 219 might call a demon salvation. Because the demons believe who Jesus is, but this is taking it a step further and saying, but I'm giving my life to you. I recognize I'm a sinner. I need your saving grace, your mercy. I need your body. I need your blood to cleanse my sin. It's that. It's, it's giving your life to Jesus and believing that he is the only way, truth, and life to get to heaven. Here's the other qualification for being a disciple of Jesus. A willingness to obey Jesus. A willingness to obey Jesus. Genuine faith demonstrated by works. James says faith without works is dead. So it's not just enough just to say, I claim to, to know and have all the right answers for Jesus and maybe that you really are saved as a Christian, but there's a lifestyle that you begin to live that says, hey, I'm actually obeying what Jesus tells me to do from his word. I think if you did a survey, you would find that a lot of people like Jesus. Whether they believe he's God or not, another story, but they would look at him with most favor. Most people do. They don't like the God of the Old Testament so much, but they like Jesus. He seems to be a good guy. But if you were to ask them, hey, do you like to obey everything that Jesus says? And you're like, I don't think I want to check that box. Have you been there? I know I have. Yes, Jesus makes it clear that a true disciple obeys him. Look, John 14, 23 says, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. 
Jesus makes it clear, like, hey, if you're going to say you believe in me, then you're going to have to show it by how you live your life. You're going to have to obey me. And if you claim that you love me, then live it out so I can see that. Oftentimes in my prayer life, I will tell Jesus that I love him. You do that. One of the things I also pray regularly when I say that, Jesus, I love you, I also say, and I pray that you give me the strength to prove it by how I live. Because I know I can't do it on my own. So we've learned the difference between a disciple and an apostle, a follower, a messenger. We've learned that he chose 12, he's looked at their names, and we just looked at the qualifications or some character traits of what a disciple is going to look like that, that says, hey, this is, this is legit. This is a person who's really following after Jesus. But there's more to learn this morning, specifically two significant lessons from the 12. So what significant lessons can we learn from the 12 disciples? There's two lessons I just want to offer you. There's a lot that I could offer, but for the sake of wanting to go home today, I figured I'll just keep it to two. And I'm not one who's short So when it comes to speaking. So here's the thing. I look at the first, first, uh, first uh, lesson. It's kind of like a promise. That's a promise you can take to the bank, so to speak. The second lesson I want to submit to you, think of it more like a premise. So if you do this, then the promise will come true. Let's look at the first lesson. Like the 12 disciples, here's a lesson. Every Christian can be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. Every single Christian, disciple, follower, of Jesus seeking to obey his word, loving him that way, can be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. Now, when someone comes up on a stage with a nice tie on and says that you, that's true, you might sit there and think, well, you know, I don't know if I can really be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. You might come in here this morning and think, I'm too old for that. My time has, is past me for making and being instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. Or you might think on the other end, expecting I'm too young, I'm not ready to do that. Or maybe you're struggling as a single parent. Maybe it's unemployed. Maybe you're a widow or a widower. And you're like, I can't do anything instrumental for Jesus. I'm doing good to, to get out of bed and face life. I'm not even thinking about being instrumental for Jesus. I'll come back to that hopefully in a moment if I remember. I'll hit on that in a second. Well, you might say, I'm not, I don't have enough money. Doesn't it take money to do something instrumental for Jesus? Uh, we, I mean, we take an offering every week. Seems like that's got to be necessary. Or I have to have a certain look. Or I have to be powerful. Or I have to be famous. Or I have to have this talent or this ability or this background, or this upbringing. I, I hear you on that. And yet I would still say to you, face to face, eye to eye, I, I, I hear you, but I'm telling you that you as a Christian can be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. And you might say to me, how is this possible? How is this possible? And I would simply say to you, in kindness, I would say, because it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. We sometimes come to God and we think we have to have all of our stuff put together or a certain background or a certain skill set 
or, or have whatever it is that we think we've got to have to be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus, and we put it and look at ourselves. And I'm thinking, yeah, if you look at yourself, you might be feeling that way. I mean, if you look at the 12 and you were to look at them, I mean, you've got one guy who's a, uh, a, a tax collector working for Rome, and you got another guy, that's Matthew, then you got another guy, uh, Judas or, or James the, 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 uh, the, the zealot. And you look at that guy and you think, well, is that possible that these guys could come together and work together? One guy is working for Rome and the other guy hates Rome. In my mind, that's like bringing a Republican and a Democrat together. It's just like, I don't know if that's going to work. And Jesus says, I'm picking you because I can work through you. I can do an amazing work through you if you're willing to let me be uh, uh, be that person that Simon the Zealot, that James and Judas might have been one too, but Simon is the only one that's recorded in Scripture. Here, here's the fact. When you look in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, when Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he talks about that some of you weren't really wise according to the world's standards. Some of you didn't have it all together according to what the world said. But God says, but God has taken the foolish things of the world and, 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 and made them and worked it out in a wise way. That God has done something that no one else can do. And ultimately what it says at the end of that passage in verse 31, it just says, hey, at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it comes down to. And it says, hey, this is really ultimately gonna be all about him. He's the one who takes and transforms your life. And so through, though, through Jesus, every Christian can be instrumental in changing the world for him He's really, 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 really good at taking someone's life and transforming it to become something that it couldn't have become before coming to know and walking with Jesus. He takes the ordinary, imperfect people and transforms them in such a way that they can change the world. So that's the first significant lesson we can learn from the 12 disciples because they did that. They changed the world. They were instrumental in doing that. So were the other disciples that, that followed him and walked with him. I mean, we know that as we think about our own journey and our walk with Jesus, the disciples, people who followed Jesus, and the impact that they've had on our lives. So that's the promise. But let's look at the second one. It's kind of a second lesson. Think of it maybe as a premise. This is a significant lesson. Number two, like the 12 disciples, every Christian is usable when they accept God's call to action. Every Christian is usable unto God when they accept what God is calling you to do. That action, that prompting of the heart the Holy Spirit does to you. That, that's that's, that's kind of like I said, the premise. If you're willing to accept and, and God's call to action, the promise is that he, you will be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. Even if you feel inadequate or undereducated or short on time, I want to submit to you that God has uniquely created you to be who you are. God has a role for you to play that no one else can play. It does not matter what age you are. God has a place of ministry designed just for you that is unique just for you to fit in and bless somebody else and serve and use your life to bless others. God has the details worked out. And God says, I promise you that I will work with you. When I prompt your heart, if you'll yield to that, let me work through you. 
I can allow you and I can make you usable and I can do things that are instrumental in changing this world for Jesus. How do I know this? How is this possible? I mean, if you think about it, if, if, if we were to do that, if we were to say, yes, Lord, when he prompts us, what does that look like? Uh, think about the challenge that, that, that we have on the five for five, five, praying five minutes a day for five people and looking to invite them to Easter. You have five invitations that are there in your bulletin. That's a challenge, is it not? The question becomes then, are we willing to accept that challenge and actually follow through on it? even if just one person that we would invite, I would encourage you to know that God will use you when you accept that call to action. How do I know this? How do I know that every Christian, and I mean every Christian, caps lock every Christian, is usable when they accept God's call to action, that they can be instrumental in changing the world? Let me give you five reasons, five reasons why this is true. And we're gonna look at it from like the twelve. Yes, they're apostles, but they were also disciples. So like the 12, there's something that they had that you have as well. I'll give you these five reasons why. The first one is that like the 12, you are chosen by God. Yeah, maybe Jesus didn't walk down off the mountain praying all night and choose you, but you are still chosen by God. In fact, when you look through Scripture, it is that where we see that God has chosen us like he did with the 12. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, your notes say Ephesians 1, 1 to 4. Good verses, but 3 to 5 is a little bit more focused. I won't read all the verses here that are up on the screen, but note the line, the third line there on the screen. It says, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. The Bible says, if you go on to the next line, right at the very end, the fourth line down at the end, it says, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God has chosen you out of darkness and made you his own. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says that, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just like the 12, you are chosen as well. If you're a Christian and you're here today, you've been chosen by God. It was God's choice and you yielded to his prompting of the Holy Spirit to give your life to Jesus. And like the 12, because you're chosen by God, when you make yourself available to God, he will use you when you accept his call to action. Here's the second reason why every Christian is usable when they accept God's call to action. You are gifted by God. Just like the 12 and every Christian before you, you are gifted by God. If you're a Christian... If no one else has said this to you, may I be the one who has said it to you. Congratulations. You are gifted. The moment you receive Jesus as your Savior, God bestowed upon you at least one spiritual gift. You're gifted to serve the body, to honor the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 Simply this has this word that there's a manifestation of the Spirit. It's given for the common good. There's a working that God is doing here. Romans 12, uh, verses 4 to 6, help us, helps us interpret Scripture of 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Romans 12, 4 to 6, 6 I just want to simply focus on, it talks at the beginning there about being a body of many members. It's a physical body, but then it uses that as a metaphor to say that we're one body in Christ, individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us 
He says, let us use them. 1 Peter 4.10 puts it this way, as each one has received a special gift, employ it into serving one another. Use it to serve God and the church. And like the 12, because you're gifted, if you're willing to be used of God, when you and accept his call to action, you can be instrumental in changing the world. Let me give you a third reason that you can be usable and change the world. You can be instrumental. Like the 12, you're created by God for good works. God has created you for good works. Before you were born, the Bible says that God knew you. Before you were born, God laid out a place and a time and an opportunities for you to have and engage in that are uniquely created for you. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, like the 12, you are created by God for good works, which makes you usable when you accept God's call to action. So you're chosen by God, you're gifted by God, you're created by God for good works. These are some reasons why every Christian is usable when they accept God's call to action that allows them to be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. Here's a fourth reason. Like the 12, you're an ambassador for God. You are an ambassador for God. An ambassador is a person who acts as a representative or a promoter of a specified activity. An ambassador, we have them in our country. As a Christian, you represent Christ. That's who you're an ambassador for. You're a promoter of Christ. I mean, in the fight for fighting, you're basically promoting that Jesus is alive, that he's risen from the dead. You're a promoter of, of Christ as an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20, your notes say 5.17. actually like that number better than number 20, but it's, number, it's verse 20, actually. 2 Corinthians 5.20 just simply says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, that God is working through you to let people know about Jesus and, and encouraging him to be reconciled to God. So you're an ambassador for God, which makes you usable when you accept his call to action. The fifth and final reason is this one. Like the 12 once were, you are today alive. You are alive so God can be glorified. Do me one favor, since all of you have not raised your hands too much in the church today, would you take your right hand for just a moment and raise it up? And I'll see who's actually still awake. That's a good thing. Now I want you to form two fingers, and I want you to go right here. Do you feel something? What is it? It's your what? Your pulse. You know what I've watched through the years, like emergency, squad 51, and they would go up to the person who was, was unconscious and they'd do what? They'd feel his to see if he was alive. You just checked it. Praise God. You're alive. God still has you here. You're alive. So what? So that God can be glorified through you, through your life. God is not finished with you. You're alive so he can be glorified. First Peter 4.11 just simply says whoever speaks or whoever serves is doing so that God may be what? Glorified. Glorified. Simply put in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do in Aliso Viejo and around Southern California, 
do it all for the glory of God. You're alive so God can be glorified. Like the 12 once were, you are alive today so God can be glorified when you accept his call to action. So Christian, follower of Jesus, I want to submit to you that you can be instrumental in changing the world. I, I, I want to encourage you to believe that because you've looked at Scripture. And then you might still say like, okay, Okay, Bill, I, I get this verse. It seems like that has some merit to it. But seriously, I mean, at the end of the day, what can I really do this week? This coming week, for the next five days, four days, three days, two days, seven days, whatever you want it to be, what can I actually do to be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus? And I would simply say to you, how about the five for five? How about those invitations that you have in your bulletin today? That's a simple way of how you can be usable. You see, if you're willing to accept God's call to action and pray for five people and invite five people or two people or 10 people, I want to submit to you this thought, that it is very possible that one day, there will likely be a person you'll never meet until you get to heaven that'll be in heaven because of you. You're thinking, how is this possible? I'll watch the video and find out. This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it. Now he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of Kim. Yet, oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. Now, is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family. And he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. 
One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life, ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James. He was influenced by Thomas. Thomas saw an uncommon joy in Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. So, like the 12, those guys in verses 14 to 16, like, like the five and it's depicted in the video, I want to submit you can be instrumental in changing the world for Jesus. Like the 12, like the five, you are usable when you accept God's call to action. That's the truth about the 12. That's the truth about the five. And I want to submit to you that if you're a Christian here today, that's the truth about you. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for this time of season that we have a risen Savior to celebrate. Father, I pray that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us, that, Lord, you would empower us to take what we've learned today, these lessons, and take them to heart and realize, God, that we can be instrumental in changing the world for you. It's not about us. It's about you, Jesus, doing the work through us when we say yes to your call to action. God, help us to have the faith necessary and the humility that's required to depend upon you for the strength to live out the Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen.